0: All right, all right. Thanks again for being here. You can find your seat. That would be awesome. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. I'm meeting new people who've never been a part of Tallgrass Church or the Well. I'm meeting some people that have been a part of the Well. It's awesome. So we're we're so excited to keep exploring uh, this this possibility of being better together. Tallgrass Church and the Well exploring kingdom possibilities. And uh, we're for sure, we're exploring this through the summer and we're planning for the fall. So we got some, some great things ahead that we're planning. So thanks so much for jumping in with us on this ex- exploration. We're so glad that you're a part of that, whether you're here in person or you're online. So thanks for all tuning in online as well. I failed to mention earlier the bathrooms. I think we got to keep hitting that for people so the main bathroom we use is all the way up the stairs, all the way down the hall, and take a left, and there it is. And uh, so, if you need that, you better start moving now. So there you go. Um, okay, as we as we keep uh, exploring Tallgrass at the well, you might want to know how do I give to either of these churches? Well, Tallgrass Church has the black box back here, dun dun dun, uh, and the well has the joy box. Yeah, much more exciting. Okay, but both churches have online giving. That's the main way most people uh, tend to give these days, which is great. You know, you might even click that recurring donation button. It's very helpful for everyone. Um, But we've also begun a new fund called the Better Together Fund, and that is specifically for those who are brand new to both churches or to whatever this thing is that we're exploring. So if you're brand new and you've not been a part of Tallgrass Church or The Well, uh, this is actually set up on the uh, Tallgrass Church website, tallgrass.church church slash give. And then there's a drop down, and you can click Better Together Fund. And so that's a, that's a great opportunity to give to this thing. And then at the end of each month, we'll cut that down the middle and uh, give half to each of the churches. And this might also be, you know, if someone's out there listening and thinks, oh, this is so cool that two churches are actually exploring like this. And you want to give to this exploration. That would be a great way to do that. That would be awesome. So that's the Better Together Giving Fund. And then uh, a main focus for this announcement is the invitation to join a team. So you have on your chair or close to you this put me in coach uh, flyer. So uh, I, I was in the marching band for five years or four years. Frank Trace wanted me to be in there for five years. I was in there for four years, uh, 99 to 04. Well, there was this story that lived in infamy where one of the marching band players went up to Coach Snyder in the middle of a game and said, put me in, Coach. And Frank Trace was so upset to, to distract the, the, the coach like that because, you know, he's not supposed to be on that team. When you're in the marching band, you're not, you're not jumping on the football team. Thankfully here, you can say, put me in, Coach, and we will put you on a team. There is space for you on this team, Okay. So uh, you can read here there's several ways to serve, uh, and these, these uh, ways to serve are all related to, to Sunday morning worship gathering. Uh, the two I want to highlight, the, the top one is serving with kids. So at Tallgrass Church, we call our kids' ministry Sprouts. Uh, this means kids, serving with kids, ages uh, zero all the way up to, to 10 years old or so, um, So we have a lot of kids. Have you guys noticed that? If you're involved with the well, have you noticed there's a few more kids running around here? Last week, I think we had 68, 70 adults or so and almost 30 kids. So a lot of kids, which means we have a lot of opportunity to invest in the future and invest even in the here and now in the church. So um, I would strongly encourage you, if you're out there thinking, man, I, I would love to serve with kids, fill this out, drop it in the joy box. Okay, great. Uh, If you're out there and you're thinking, man, I don't know if I could serve with kids, fill this out. Drop it in the joy box. We'll be in touch with you. And one of the things I'm excited about is to be able to serve with kids. I know Pastor Josh Siders of the Well and I have been talking about that. We're excited for this team to come together, more people to preach and to play and to lead so that we too can serve with the kids. Uh, Even this morning, um, little Reed Parker grabbed my pinky finger and started pulling me this way, and my, my heart was just drawn to be present with all of these kids. What an amazing opportunity to serve. So I invite you to serve, especially with the kids. So fill that out. We will be in touch with you. And the next thing I wanted to highlight is serving uh, with the uh, worship team, so we actually have a jam session on the calendar. Um, if you sing or you play an instrument, or you think you sing and you think or you think you play an instrument, this jam session is for you. Um, and also, if you run sound or slides, or you just want to get connected with that, you are welcome to join us for a, for a brief jam session. This will be July six at seven forty five p.m. right here. Give us a chance to kind of to see where our, our musicalities at, see what kind of interest people have, get you plugged into to the, the system, things like that. Brandon Pitt will lead that time. It'll be awesome. We, we really look forward uh, to continuing to grow the, the musicianship of this, of this tallgrass church and the well and this exploration. So put that on your calendar. Last announcement is church picnic today at Longs Park. So what, as soon as we're done here, Go grab some food, show up at Longs Park so we can continue to connect with one another. So let me pray for Josh as he comes up and uh, gets us going into our sermon series for the summer. God, thanks again for the morning. Thanks that we could be together. I pray that that we would each have a servant's heart. Even if we're brand new to this thing, maybe we don't even know Christ, yet we're excited to be a part of a community uh, that engages meaningfully, that we would serve, we would jump on a team. I pray those teams would grow this summer. Pray for a great time. Uh, this summer in this sermon series. We love you, in Christ's name, amen.
1: Amen. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Um, Yeah, hey, welcome, and it's good to have you all here. Thanks for those joining us online for worship. We are uh, starting a brand new series where our pastors have have gotten together and talked about uh, 1 John and how we love this letter, uh, this, this epistle, as it's referred to, And how it embodies this uh, spirituality that's practical and earthy. I actually call it embodied spirituality. And uh, what we're going to do over the next eight weeks is talk about how John moves us from head to heart to hands. And so I'm really excited, really excited for... Uh, our churches to, to, to see the rotation of, of our pastors preaching through this, and then i'm just i 'm excited for today. I was telling the rally the teams before. Um, I put a USB into my computer uh, the right way in the first try so i 'm feeling pretty good about uh, today because that's, that's pretty much impossible. Even though I know the chance of doing that is like 50-50, it's like I'm always on the, the, the tail's end of the coin flip when it comes to USB, I don't know about you guys. Anyway, some of you uh, Gen Zers are going, who uses USBs anymore anyway? That's, that's a message for another time. So um, so let me, let me jump, we're gonna jump right into First John, but I wanna give you, give me like five minutes of just nerdiness to give you the background details on this letter. Is that cool? Like this is probably the only time during the series you'll hear this, but I just think it's really important to know like why is this letter even being written and who wrote it and, and what for and all that stuff. So it's, it's written by John the Beloved, John the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest and best friends. Uh, John was one of the 12, uh, followed Jesus around for three and a half years, and uh, referred to himself as, as the one whom Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. And so he, he knows his identity in Christ, he knows um, his place in God's heart, and he's not afraid to share that with others. And, and a lot of that flows into this letter. Now, when John is writing this, he's, he's older. Uh, this is written about uh, between 70 and 90 AD. So John is an old guy. Tradition actually says he's uh, the only one of the 12 who was not martyred, uh, so all the other apostles were killed for their faith. John, uh, they couldn't figure out how to kill John is why he's still alive. Like, they tried to put him to death and persecute him, but he kept just surviving all those attempts. And so they were like, we're just gonna put him on an island and forget about him. And so the the, the great thing is that he's still able to communicate with these churches and uh, write uh, letters, and, and we get the book of Revelation from the pen of John, uh, so on and so forth. So he's writing to Christians... Uh, uh, in Asia Minor, he's, he's very uh, uh, famous, I guess you would say, uh, in, in that region. Uh, the, that's the region of the seven letters of the book of Revelation. They're, they're very familiar with John, the beloved apostle in that area. And so the unique thing about this letter in particular is that it's not structured like other letters in the New Testament or the other letters that John writes he is he, he kind of just just jumps into the content there's no greeting there's no ending it kind of ends abruptly and it's the only one really like that in the new testament and so many scholars think that this was more of a a circular letter, one sent to many churches and to be read in, in not just one context, but, but these principles carry through to other church settings in that area. And so it was written because uh, there was some funny business going on, uh, as there sometimes is in churches. And even in the first century church, there's, there's stuff going on that, that John, that's prompting him to write this letter. And, and the church is going through a church split because there's this uh, uh, philosophical sect who is peddling their ideas and and trying to uh, alert Christians away from the faith. These these people are called Gnostics. They had a different kind of schema for salvation and who they thought God was. And so they're they're going through a church split because a lot of John's friends and and congregants had had started believing in in this Gnostic religion and taking them away from the faith. So we'll get into that a little bit more uh, later. Uh, The themes that you can pull out uh, uh, throughout the letter, the the five, chapters of 1 John, you'll see light versus dark, you'll see love versus fear, life versus death, and truth versus lies. In a way, John says the same thing over and over and over again. These words pop up over and over because he's really trying to drive this point home. And so for us today, reading the letter from John the first letter from John, there are four questions that you might just pay attention to and have in the back of your mind that I believe John is really trying to get across and really can't apply to us in our day and age and, and, and drives this, this letter home to a, to a practical extent in our own lives. These four questions. First, how do we handle conflict in the church? What's our role as peacemakers? And is there a point at which we part ways with people who are divisive? Does that sound familiar? How do we handle conflict in the church? That's really practical, and we wanna get our our heart and our, our mind around how we engage people. Second, how do we correct wrong teachings which are supported by claims of spiritual authority? When people are claiming that God told them or they heard from the Holy Spirit or they read the Bible in a bit different way or they're taking on different spiritual information or, 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 or uh, uh, context, how do we correct? How do we practice communal discernment and what crucial conversations should we have with those? Should, should we, this isn't like, what should our pastors do with conflict in the church? What, what should our pastors do about false teaching? What should we do? How should we have communal discernment and crucial conversations with people who we love and care about and, uh, and, and, and uh, who, th- those who use God's voice for their own means? Thirdly, how do we determine what is essential for Christian faith? Every religion has boundaries. How do we determine what's essential and what's non-essential? Because that's really important. We don't want to uh, you know, be close-fisted on things that we should be open-handed on. And yet we don't want to be open-handed on things that we really should hold to be true about Jesus and about life in the kingdom. And is doctrine the same? Is it all the same? Should we all be close-fisted about everything? That's even a a presuppositional question about like there are different doctrines, different uh, levels of those. And then fourthly, how do we approach someone whose conduct doesn't matter their stated beliefs? How should we weigh the fruit of someone's life and test it against scripture? When we're caught between the spectrum of belief and different churches and the culture telling us to abandon everything, To gratify ourselves, what are the non-negotiables that we need to apply to our life? In essence, I want to boil it down that I think we, we want to wrestle with these two questions specific to today. First question is, who is Jesus, really? Who's Jesus? You know, he asked the question to his disciples, who do you say that I am? That's one of the most important questions that we can answer for ourselves. Who do I really believe Jesus to be? And then secondly, is he really worth all this trouble? Is he worth the pain we endure, the conflict, the heartbreak? Is God really worth all of this? So with that, let's jump in to 1 John. You can turn to it in your Bibles. We'll have it up here uh, in the NIV version is the one I'll be uh, reading from. First John chapter one, verse one says this. That which from was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal truth, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may, also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete." So here, uh, and, and we're going to read the whole of first, uh, uh, the cha- first chapter of First John. I'm going to uh, portion it out into three sections, make some commentary on it, and then we'll get to the next one here in a minute. John, I, I want you to realize that he does something really interesting in the opening lines of his letter. It, he uses the word that to refer to Jesus instead of whom? That which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which we are witness to. In effect, John is emphasizing the totality of Jesus' person and his work. It's it's sort of this rhetorical device in uh, ancient Near East letter writing where he's not just talking that that Jesus, that God stepped onto the human stage and and that in and of itself is a miraculous, uh, noteworthy event but he's, he's talking about not just the person of Jesus, but the totality of his life and ministry. He wants us to pay attention to Jesus' life, the way that he interacted with people, the way that he invited people in, the way that John could write a letter and say, I, I've been near him, I know him, because I've touched him and I've seen him and I've heard him and I'm familiar with him. In other words, the fact that God came in the flesh and walked us alongside humanity is important to address the issues that he's about to bring up. Anyone who walked with Jesus could hear him, see him, and touch this dynamic reality. And he uses the phrase, the word of life, which I just think is beautiful. Uh, it, it harkens back to his, uh, uh, the gospel that he wrote, that Jesus was, was uh, with God and, and he was God. The word was with God in the beginning, the logos of God. Uh, Jesus, as the word, is the creative self-expression of God and everything in existence is made by him, through him, and for him. And so he's doing this, this uh, again, this rhetorical writing device where he's, where his, his readers, the listeners of this letter, would know exactly when he drops the word, word, logos, They go, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. He's talked to us before about Jesus as the word of God. And yet, John isn't interested in an abstract doctrine. Because when you read the letters of John and the gospel of John, uh, there's three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, and then there's John that stands alone. It's more kind of poetic and abstract, and it's beautiful in that way. It's, it's, I think if you can have a favorite gospel, it's my favorite gospel, because I just love, I love G, uh, John's relating to Jesus in all these ways that's just really poetic and beautiful. And yet he's not interested in some abstract philosophy, Jesus as the word. In describing Jesus' personhood and work, by describing how the apostles touched him and saw him and were with him, John is embracing the earthiness of his ministry, as opposed to the Gnostic cult, which traded in secret knowledge, Jesus is, uh, John is saying that Jesus lived his life out in the open. It was an invitational, incarnational life where he welcomed people in. He crashed parties. He invited himself over to people's houses to have meals. It's like, hey, we're coming to your place. I'm bringing 12 of my closest friends and they're bringing 100 of their closest friends. So get ready for us. Like, it's just, it's crazy, but he's God. So of course he could do that. He's like, I created your house, by the way, so I'm gonna crash it real quick. John is saying there's an earthiness, there's a tangibility, there's a closeness with which God came near. He, he, he says, and, and I love how it's put in the message translation in first chapter of Gospel of John, God moved into the neighborhood in the incarnation. When, when God became flesh in the person of Jesus, he moved into our neighborhood. And he borrowed sugar a lot. Let's just say that. So he believed that the, uh, the Gnostics believed the material world was created and therefore fallen and evil and bad and something to get away from. And the spiritual world was this divine place that transcended the material. It was something to uh, attain to. John's saying, no, 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 no. See, heaven and earth collided in the person and work of Jesus. And you don't wanna separate the two. You need both of them. And so John refutes them. It says in Jesus, um, that that heaven and earth collided and brought salvation to the world. And not only is he rebuffing the detached spirituality of his day, John is insisting that the fellowship with the Father and the Son reaches its fullness when it's connected to believers in the church and all of their earthiness too. It's like he's saying this to the, the church. In the midst of the confusion, the hurt, the conflict, believe in God Trust in Jesus and love others in deep connection through the local church. Okay, let's, let's uh, go to the second part of, of, of the passage here. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So here, John tells us that God is light. He's perfect, pure, without blemish. He's the perfection of all beauty and his righteousness. God is like the sun that breaks through on a dreary day. He's the warmth that overcomes the cold front. He's the cleansing shine that dries up all the stale and putrid pooling. And God's light is also revealing. God illuminates the darkness, unveils lies with truth. God exposes our true spiritual identity, whether we belong to Jesus or remain in our broken and alienated state. So it seems that some in John's day uh, believed that God wasn't interested in their behavior. Because if you're a Gnostic, The fallen world doesn't matter. Everything's about the detached spiritual where the soul is connected. And so you can do whatever you want here because God doesn't care. You could live it up. You could be lazy. You could just be sinful. You could be whatever you want to be. God's not paying attention. All he cares about is the spiritual realm. And so they believe then that there's this enlightened phase that you can enter into. If you know this secret knowledge, uh, uh, Gnostic is, is from the root word gnosis or knowledge. There's this secret revelatory knowledge that, that God bestows on a certain uh, select group of people. And if you, you are part of that group, then you can just uh, attain to this enlightened phase. And so John is saying, no, God is light and God shines his light into the darkness All the little areas of your life that you're trying to keep hidden, God's light can touch that. God's light will reveal that. And so John is adamant. There's no division between belief and behavior. It's not obtaining to a certain knowledge because our behavior always follows what we really believe about God. They're the, those that, that, that know that, they're deeply connected in God's sight. They're, they're uh, integrated people when your belief matches your behavior. So there's good news that John expounds on here. It's through the blood of Jesus that we're cleansed. He's borrowing language from the temple, familiar with the writers of the New Testament, the readers of the New Testament as well. Jesus went to the cross to give his life in our place so we could be alive to God, so that our belief and our behavior would be aligned once again as God created us to be. And again, this word fellowship again comes up. John sees it as uh, this intrinsic connection between our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. So much, so for John, the the one is impossible to divide. You, You can't separate your connection with God and your connection with people. How you treat, he'll later actually say this, how you treat people actually reveals what you believe to be true about God, who you can't see. You can't hate your brother who you do see or your sister who you do see and say that you love God who you can't see. We're deeply connected to him and to Christian community. So, final section, 1 John 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and will forgive our sins and purify us all from unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours. Uh, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John continues to correct and, and, uh, uh, the false teaching that was pervading these churches in this area. Um, they believe that, that when you become enlightened, that's salvation. You don't need a Jesus on a cross. You don't need anybody dying for you. When you're enlightened, that's how you get saved. And, and John is, again, adamant. No, Jesus, in his body, in his flesh, died a physical death, and then was resurrected in his physical body. And it's because of that we are saved and we are set on a path of what we call sanctification or growing to be more like Jesus in every way. And the thing is... It's, it's a downplay of the seriousness of sin. They just really grapple with this. There's a lot of sin language here in the opening chapter of John, but it's for a reason. It's because they thought, this Gnostic cult thought they were above sinning or sinning didn't matter. There's no such thing as sin or who cares? We're not broken. We we're, we're born this way. We're made this way. This, it's all that there is. And, and so we have to attain to this. He, he's saying, no, sin is more than a momentary lapse or a slight. Sin is a cosmic offense towards a holy and just king. Sin is the cause of every evil, every abuse, every dark deed. Sin is pervasive, and sin needs eradicated. It doesn't just need a Band-Aid solution. It needs someone to come and deliver us from our, our condition. We can't work our way out. We can't earn our way out. We can't bargain our way out of our sinful condition. We cannot approach God on our own merit. We needed what what Martin Luther calls an alien righteousness. We need someone else on our behalf to do the work that's impossible for us to do for ourselves. And so to make amends for sin requires more than amnesty, more than just a, a forgiveness. We'll just you know, zero the ledger out, forgive and, uh, and forget. It requires retribution. It requires the offender to own their part in the cosmic struggle of rebellion against God and to say that we can't possibly dig our way out of the hole we're in. So John, again, is adamant. Jesus alone is capable of forgiving our sin because he's the one who took it all upon himself. All the consequences, all the guilt, all the shame was put on the cross of Calvary. And he's equally adamant that anyone who says they don't have sin will face the judge without an advocate on their behalf. And the good news is there's mercy for anyone who wants to approach God through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, you'll find forgiveness and relief. Jesus is a refuge, he's the compassionate one. He's sympathetic and empathetic because he's walked in our shoes and been tempted in every way and yet overcame sin. He's the only one who's ever lived without sin. And he knows our temptation. He knows our weakness. He knows our brokenness because he did it all and did it without sin. And so it's important for us who are Christians here, Christians who are watching and worshiping online, that the gospel is not just for those who are disconnected from God. The gospel is for Christians too every day of our lives. In him, we find relief the first day we approach him for forgiveness and the thousandth time that we stumble and are in need of his grace and mercy again. So let's talk about some ways at which this culture of Gnosticism that's affecting John and the early church really is affecting us in our day and our age too. So I've got, this isn't exhaustive and there's, I don't know that there's a priority, but I've got three because I tend to always have three examples. So there we go. We're gonna jump into it. There's three things in which we need to recognize this Gnostic uh, culture invading the church. First is the rise of what's called expressive individualism. Uh, Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor uses the phrase uh, expressive individualism to describe how each of us find our meaning by giving expressions to our own internal feelings and desires. To feel authentic, we've gotta be true to our own selves in this way of thinking. And we we need the people around us to, to recognize that and, and to, to uh, accept us for the way that it, we, we are thinking and feeling on the inside. This is the consequential outworking of the enlightenment idea of I think, therefore I am. But now it's I feel it and therefore it must be true. We are influenced less and less by the institutions and traditions that our elders have passed down to us which uh, to us, the, the traditions and institutions feel like conformity or they feel like oppression. To us, But but check this out. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman says this. Take, for example, the issue of job satisfaction, something that is significant for most adults. My grandfather left school at 15 and spent the rest of his working life as a sheet metal worker in a factory in Birmingham. That's England, not Alabama, by the way. The industrial heartland of England. There you go. If he had been asked if he found satisfaction at his work, there's a distinct possibility he would not even have understood the question question given that it really reflects the concern of psychological man's world to which he did not belong but if he did understand he would probably have answered in terms of whether his work gave him the money to put food on his family's table and shoes on his children's feet if it did so, then yes, he would have affirmed that his job satisfied him. His needs were those of his family, and enabling him to meet them, his work gave him satisfaction. The difference is stark. For my grandfather, job satisfaction was empirical, outwardly directed, and unrelated to his psychological state. For members of mine and subsequent generations, the issue of feeling is central. We feel or we think something needs to be a certain way, and we act on that. And yet, instead of acting be out of duty or responsibility to the social fabric of those around us, it's about me and what I want. Now, we might shake our head at this and go, yeah, our culture is really, it's really wrecked right now because of this. But Christians have their own methods of forcing their way. We tell others, God told me. You ever, you ever had the God card played on you? You ever had, you ever played the God card? Like, like there's a decision that you know, like, I just really want to do it. But you can't say that because you know, like, we're not supposed to say that as Christians. You're supposed to be, you know, serve others and follow God. But how we get out of it is we go, you know, I felt like the Holy Spirit told me to do this, to change jobs, to leave my wife, to, to leave my church. Like, I just feel like God's telling me to do this. And, and, the thing is, like, what, what, what we do when we do that is we go, hey, God told me, and I have to be obedient. And if you disagree with me, you disagree with God. Oh, that's expressive individualism, just with God's voice slapped on top of it, guys. And so we really have to push back and, and really invite communal discernment. It, it's after so many years of a, a, as a pastor it just surprises me how often we make decisions in our own bubble without inviting others to speak into it. Like big, life-changing decisions, that's a lot of pressure to get it right on our own. And God has gifted us community. And it's a safeguard where people who, who are godly and love Jesus and love you can go, are you really sure that you wanna make that choice? But we, we would rather say, God told me because we really just want the things that we want. So, number two, I'm, I'm gonna leave, I could just, that's a whole sermon there, but that's, I'm gonna have to stop there and move on. Second, uh, Gnosticism infiltrates the church through a deni- denial of the pervasiveness of sin. There's a popular refrain being spoken today that we're fine just the way we are. We're, we're not born broken, we're not in need of rescue, we're capable of living a life full of meaning, success, and purpose apart from God. But if you need a guru or a life coach, then yeah, give Jesus a try. He had some cool teachings that might just help you get ahead in life. That's how we tend to use God. You're fine. You're, you're, you're exactly who you need to be. Oh, you, you want to be a better version of yourself? Well, sure. Jesus is a great mentor. And you can take or leave whatever you want from his teaching in his life. Sometimes even Christians err in their beliefs on this. We can make the gospel more about getting good advice rather than being good news for our, our sinful and broken state. The gospel is something we, in this, this frame of thought, meant to help us uh, make us better, just make up the little bit where we're falling short instead of realizing that sin makes us completely unable to do anything to be in a back and right relationship with God, uh, Jesus said it himself in, in John fifteen. Uh, Jesus says, "If you're if you're disconnected from the vine, you're going to die. You're going to wither. Without me, you can do nothing." We either believe that as Christians is true, or we just really have to wrestle with Jesus and say, "I don't believe that that's true. I think I can actually do good stuff without you, God." And so, N.T. Wright in his book Simply Christian says this: When we see ourselves in the light of Jesus's type of kingdom and realize the extent to which we have been living by a different code altogether. We realize, perhaps for the first time, how far we have fallen short of what we were made to be. This realization is what we call repentance, a serious turning away from patterns of life which deface and distort our genuine humanness. It isn't just a matter of feeling sorry for particular failings, though uh, that will often be true as well. It's the recognition that the living God has made us humans to reflect his image into our world and that we haven't done so. The technical term for that is sin, uh, whose primary meaning is not breaking the rules but missing the mark, failing to hit the target of complete, genuine, glorious humanness. Once again, the gospel itself, the very message which announces that Jesus is Lord and calls us to obedience, contains the remedy forgiveness unearned and freely given because of the cross. All we can say is thank you. Thirdly, questioning the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for faith and salvation is how Gnosticism weaves its way into their. Again, let's, let's visit the Gnostics. What did they believe? They 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 believed that Jesus did not come in the flesh, God did not come in the flesh because flesh is material and evil and fallen. And so they denied the physical body of Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus' death held any significance for them. By inference, the resurrection didn't happen because you can't be resurrected if your body didn't die. So we don't believe in death and resurrection of Jesus. And that Jesus' teachings were not authoritative. They weren't binding for, for faith and practice in their life. And so therefore, there's no need for atonement, or I, I like to think of atonement as at you know, becoming one again with God. Atonement and sanctification are becoming more like Jesus. So these beliefs are alive and well in our day and age. Many see Jesus as an inspiring figure, but nothing more and requiring nothing of them. But we, as Christians, would uh, disagree, so would John. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, uh, by the way, Fleming Rutledge, if you've never heard of her, she's one of my favorite theologians. Like, She's so smart, Uh, my brain hurts after reading a chapter. Uh, She says this, The Crucifixion is the touchstone of Christian authenticity. The unique feature by which everything else, including the resurrection, is giving its true significance. The resurrection is not a set piece. It's not an isolated demonstration of divine dazzlement. It is not to be detached from its abhorrent first act. The resurrection is precisely the vindication of a man who was crucified. Without the cross, at the center of the Christian proclamation, the Jesus story can be treated as just another story about a charismatic spiritual figure. It is the crucifixion that marks out Christianity as something de- definitely different in the history of religion. It is in the crucifixion that the nature of God is truly revealed since the resurrection is God's mighty transhistorical. historical Yes, to the historically crucified son. What a great phrase, by the way. We can assert that the crucifixion is the most important historical event that has ever happened. The most important person who has ever lived involved with the most important event that's ever happened (laughs) determines our full, it begs our full attention to answer this question. Who is Jesus? The Gnostics would say, not that important. But we would say, wow. and, and can you, by the way, let me, can you imagine what it's like to be Pastor John, who walked with Jesus, he, he was at the Last Supper, Jesus from the cross entrusted the care of Mary, his mother, to John, and he shows up to pastor these churches, and half the church goes, yeah, we know you knew Jesus, but we just think we have a better way of doing things. Like how dumb is that, right? But I tell you what, if you've ever had someone that you have dearly loved, maybe it was like a a child of yours or maybe someone involved in your small group and they for a time like walked away from their faith or they just questioned the foundational things of what it's like to believe in God and be more like Jesus, you've got to feel just a little bit of comfort in John's story where half his church turned his back And he's like, no, dudes, like I told you I was there and I saw it and I heard it. And you think you have a better theology of God? Like, how does that work out? You're just like pulling your hand. Are you guys okay? Like, I don't know if this is hitting home. You just feel like those questions, like what else could I have done for that person to help them? You know, sometimes you do what you can and people are going to choose their journey. And John sets this out and just goes, you know, the best thing I can give you all is the love of Jesus because I was there and I heard it and I felt it and I experienced it. And if that's not enough for you all, I've got nothing else but the gospel, right? So I know if you're you're here or maybe you're watching, one of the questions just could be like, okay, uh, you know, Jesus, that's what I've seen. I'm like this really inspiring figure. Do I really need to believe all this stuff about crucifixion and resurrection and light and darkness and truth? Like there's some good philosophy out there. Why can't I believe that? And, and some Jesus on the side too. Do I have to believe all of that to be here and to be a Christian? And, and here's what I would say. You don't have to believe it all right now. If if this is a struggle, we, we recognize at tall grass at the well that everyone is on a journey. And God loves you no matter where you're at on that journey. And there is room for you to ask hard questions. Like maybe you even grew up in the church and you've just been a Christian all your life, and now you're finally going, Oh, wait, like I believe this because my family told me to believe it, but now I have to actually like sit in it, and I, there's a cost to this. I have to give stuff up. Do I really believe? what the scripture says about Jesus. You're on a journey just like the rest of us. And, you, and throughout this series, what I would ask is just come back and, and, and listen more about Jesus and, and John's example and, and interaction with Jesus and how he's trying to shepherd his church through the philosophical questions of his day. So no, you don't have to believe it to be here, but here's what I would tell you. If you look around and you see people and you see their life and, and their life, Maybe their circumstances don't change, but you, you see they're being changed in the midst of that. They're reacting better. They're more loving. They're more caring. They serve. They're the first to return my phone call. That's called transformation. And that happens sometimes slowly, often really slowly over years. And if you want that, then it is gonna take a wholehearted giving of yourself, a surrender to who Jesus says he is and not who our culture says that, that Jesus is. It really takes connectedness to Jesus to just say, I will take you as you are, not as I want you to be, to fit my box. So let's return to these two questions. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up. These two questions that, we, that, that I asked at the beginning of the, of the message, who is Jesus really? Who's Jesus? And the question that we have to answer secondly to that, is he really worth it to us? So if there's anything I could give you this week, anything that you could take and apply and just like practically hang on to is this, because I love to give like a next step or just an action step. Ask yourself this, sit in this, maybe even during the ending uh, worship portion, is there anything preventing me from wholeheartedly believing in Jesus as the son of God and savior of the world? Is there any kind of roadblock that I've set up or any kind of resistance that I find in my heart to embracing Jesus as he is. I just want you to sit in that, maybe do a heart check with the Holy Spirit, and maybe chew on that this week. If there's resistance, if there's reluctance, like what is that that, that, that that's being thrown up in your way? Why don't you stand with me? I'd love to pray with you, and then our, our worship team is going to uh, lead us in in a few more songs. So, um, just, just bow your heads. Get if you're if you're at home. Just, just engage in a whatever way feels good or authentic or comfortable. We just want to invite the Holy Spirit in at, to speak to us and lead us and guide us. So, God, we love you. Jesus, we love you. We're here for you. It's all for you, by you, from you. It's all about you. That's why we're here. And so, God, this week as we, as we go from this place, we. I just pray for, for an awareness, for, for the what you might call the, the eyes of our hearts being opened, being enlightened, God, that there's an awareness of our connection to you. Are there any roadblocks? Are there any, is there any excuses that we're making? Is there any thing that we're putting between you and us? Father, I, I pray that you would speak to us about that because what we want, what we're asking grace for, God, is a new level, a new layer of surrender in our lives. Deep connection to you and deep connection to others in the church, God. Would you bring us into that? Whatever other questions, whatever other concerns that are sitting behind, maybe some of those roadblocks, God, I pray that you would this week, next week, just speak to those and guide us through those. So I pray for everyone here. I pray for everyone who's watching or listening God, that you would have your hand on our lives, that you would bless us. I pray that you would shine your light into our lives and just help us to love you with all of our hearts. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.